So each of the four accounts of the life and ministry of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, give an account of the resurrection of Jesus. But Luke tells us a story about something that happened on, uh, after the resurrection that none of the other gospel writers tell us about. So in Luke chapter 24, it's not my text, it's just the basis for where we're going. Luke chapter 24 starts with a telling of the resurrection of Jesus like most of the gospels do of the women going to the tomb very early in the morning. Luke tends to give details that the other three gospel writers don't. They went to the tomb very early in the morning, discovered that Jesus' body wasn't there, and he talks about their encounter with the angel in the garden who told them, you know, those famous words, he's not here, he has risen. And, and Luke tells us how they went to tell the other disciples and how they came running to see uh, what had happened. And then in verse 13, Luke tells us that same day, Two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. And as they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them. So Luke goes on to tell us a little bit about the conversation that the three of them had, Jesus and these two disciples. We aren't given their names, we aren't sure who they were. But what's interesting is that the disciples, for whatever reason, didn't recognize Jesus until they got to where they were going. Then they walked, they walked seven miles together. And, when they, and they talked the whole time. And when they sat down for dinner, they finally recognized, well, first of all, this guy was going to the same place we were. That's weird. And then they finally recognized that the man they've been talking to out on the road was actually Jesus, the same Jesus, this is, I think, what threw them off, who had been crucified, who had been placed in a tomb for the weekend, apparently, because he indeed had risen from the dead. In verse 32, it says, they said to each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road? And then Luke says, then the two told what had happened on the way. So here's why I'm telling this story. We often refer to the idea of following Jesus as a journey. Like some people refer to it as walking with Jesus. Uh, you may have heard people talk about their Christian walk. We'll often use, use words like your faith journey. And I think all those terms are fine, um, pretty accurately describe the experience of following Jesus. Because after all, if we're following someone, it doesn't that imply that we're going somewhere? Like that we're moving in a direction somewhere. And if we're moving in a direction, if we're moving forward, then doesn't it stand to reason that there's a path that we can follow? That there's a road that we can walk on? Um, that perhaps while walking on this road, Jesus would sometimes walk ahead of us. Sometimes like we can see him up ahead. Maybe sometimes he's up and around the corner, and we can't really see him exactly. We might hear his voice, but we can't quite see him. Or maybe it's a little foggy, and we're pretty sure he's still up there. We hear his voice, but things aren't as clear as they are when the sun is shining. And sometimes, Jesus slows the pace and just settles in next to us and walks with us. So we're going to follow this analogy all the way through then it's clear to me that at some points along the way, we are also going to encounter some roadblocks. Some roadblocks that slow our progress, that might even result in a little distance between us and Jesus. I don't know if you've ever found this to be true. Sometimes these roadblocks are our own making. Sometimes they're the fallout of someone else's choices, but the result is the same. So for the next few weeks, we're going to talk about some of the roadblocks that we might encounter even as we're following Jesus, as we're trying to be faithful in our following. So I think 
I think you're here today because you want to follow Jesus faithfully. I believe that's why we're here. We want to be consistent in our following of Jesus. You want to be fully devoted and following him in a way that makes a lasting and eternal difference in your life and in the lives of others. So no matter where you find yourself in your journey as a follower of Jesus, whether you've just started your journey, whether you're deep into it, you've probably encountered some roadblocks, some experiences, some spiritual and emotional and relational challenges that slow your progress and maybe even create a distance between you and God. So we're going to talk about some roadblocks. And as we do, I think you'll identify, if you'll stay engaged with this over the next few weeks, if, you'll, if we'll just be honest, I think you'll, you'll say, yeah, I've been there, done that, or, or, or yep, I'm there right now. How did you know? You know, this roadblock has slowed me down. I'm not making the progress I really want to be making. Our hope is that by digging into some of these topics that we can begin to acknowledge and address some of the roadblocks and ultimately, here's the thing, begin to move forward to regain some of our spiritual momentum to keep moving forward as we follow Jesus. So, so the question then is, what do we do when we encounter a roadblock? Like it doesn't matter uh, where the roadblock comes from, whether it's a naturally occurring event like a rock slide or a washout from flooding, or if it's a construction project or utility work, when the road is blocked, you have a couple of options. You can wait it out for as long as it takes. You may miss an appointment, you may miss a deadline, or you may miss an opportunity. Or you can turn around and find an alternate route, which may take a little more effort, might be a little less direct way to get to your destination. But the point is, you'll get to keep moving. Like, like I don't know about you, but I would rather take a, a slow, roundabout route to get where I'm going and like actually be moving than to sit for really any length of time. Sitting for any length of time, not knowing how long I'm going to be sitting there, is not within my makeup. So I, I, going nowhere... Because I would rather be moving slowly in, a, in the opposite direction in a, in a long, circuitous route to my final destination. Like when it comes to actual travel, I am not an enjoy the journey kind of person. It's why I, I actually embrace flying because it's not about the journey, it's about getting there. Let's get there. It's about getting to wherever I'm going the fastest possible way. I don't care how uncomfortable and how much hoops they make, how many hoops they make me jump through. Let's get where we're going. Enjoying the journey is for other people, not for me. So I'd rather be moving even if it's slow, like even if it's the long roundabout way because I just want to be moving towards my destination. So. Let's bring the driving and roadblock analogy into our spiritual experience and into the thing that we're talking about when we talk about following Jesus. There are roadblocks in life. You can write that down if you want. You probably never thought of it. It's pretty obvious, right? There are roadblocks in life. We know that to be true. We've experienced it. They can bring um, our pursuit of happiness and contentment to a grinding halt. They can have the same impact on our pursuit of spiritual and emotional health and wholeness and spiritual maturity. And to get around these roadblocks, sometimes we have to turn back. Sometimes we have to be willing to take an alternate route, the road less traveled kind of thing, in order to get around the roadblock. And ultimately, the purpose is to get back on the road that we'll just call following Jesus, like the, like the disciples uh, on the road to Emmaus, where we can walk with Jesus, enjoy the conversation and the company. 
So this is part one of a series that we're going to work on with our, te- our teaching team. We've been working on this for a few months. So over the next few weeks, uh, Ben, uh, Aaron, Josh, Megan, Amanda are going to be doing some teaching through this series that we're calling Roadblocks uh, Moving Forward. Whether you're with us uh, here in person or watching church online or watching on demand or listening to our podcast, thank you for being with us. And it's your lucky day because you're here for week one. And uh, I know you're super excited about that. Over the next few weeks, uh, we're going to talk about things like fear and hurry, and shame, and insecurity, and comparison, and balance. Just some light, fluffy stuff that might relate to your life. For the most part, as we tackle these topics, uh, of course, we're coming at it from the, the position of being experts in these areas, only because we deal with it. Like, we're not experts. We got know nothing. But we're, we're living life as well, and we want to share our experience with you. Uh, and we're going to go by this format of, here's the roadblock. Let's talk about what that looks like, what kind of impact it has on us and, and on our journey with Jesus, and then what will it take to move forward around this roadblock and to move forward as we walk with Jesus. We introduced our teaching team uh, last year during the Fruitful series where we taught through the, the nine aspects of the fruit of the Spirit as we found them in Galatians 5, and you probably remember that. And as we, so as we kick off this series, I actually want to go back and start from a verse in that same passage in Galatians 5, in verse 25, where Paul writes, Since we are living by the Spirit, let us follow the Spirit's leading in every part of our lives. That's what we're attempting to do today. Let's pray together for just a moment. Father, thank you for the opportunity to gather together today, uh, to pause and just quiet ourselves, to quiet our, our minds and our hearts, and um, I pray that you would just meet us in this place through your word, through the music, through the company of other followers of Jesus. Pray that you would show us today uh, what you want to show us, the kind of truth that we need to hear so that we can address roadblocks in our following of Jesus and kind of move around that uh, to continue to pursue you. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Today we're going to talk about the roadblock of cynicism. Cynicism is um, an attitude characterized by a general distrust of the motives of others. A general distrust of the motives of others. Cynicism, this distrust of others, will bring your progress as a follower of Jesus to a grinding halt. It will bog you down to the point that you won't even realize that you aren't moving forward anymore. You'll, here's why. Because you're just convinced you're right. Everyone else is wrong. They're all a bunch of gullible fools, but you're right. And here's the thing. Like, listen, you might even be right, but you'll be stuck. You'll be sitting still while Jesus has called you to keep moving forward, to keep following him. So in order to address this roadblock of cynicism, we have to talk about our lack of trust and how to rediscover trust. See, trust is a choice. You have a choice. All of us are filled with gaps in information. So what happens when we have gaps in information is we tend to fill that gap with something. And many times, it's not the best outlook on the situation. So for instance... When someone is late for an appointment or late for a meeting, like you're supposed to meet for coffee, someone doesn't show up for whatever, you know, when you think they're supposed to show up, what immediately goes through your mind? Like, do you think, oh my goodness, they're always late, what a loser. Or do you think, I hope they're all right, I hope everything's okay, Maybe, I'm sure they're just held up in traffic or something. Like, do you choose a charitable explanation, an optimistic explanation, or do you fill the gaps with cynicism? Let's be honest. 
a lot of us default to filling our gaps with cynicism. And we live in a cynical world for a reason. There's a reason people get cynical. I used to think cynicism and age went hand in hand, but I found that even a lot of 20-somethings and even teenagers are already cynical because it's very easy to become cynical. And there's actually a, a reason for becoming cynical, but it impacts and, and affects everything that we do. Like you carry cynicism into your everyday in your marriage. You carry it into your parenting. You carry it into your friendships. You carry it into your workplace. Uh, you, can, you carry it into the church. And we all come by it honestly. And this isn't just about church. This isn't, this isn't just about the kingdom of God, big picture thing. This is very particular. Like this is the culture that you may have in your family. This is a culture you may find in your workplace, the culture you have at school. This is a culture you build with your friends and, and with your circle. It's like, are you going to choose trust or are you going to choose something else? And the something else is cynicism. Are you going to choose trust or are you going to choose cynicism? So I think the question about trust and cynicism really boils down to this question. Am I believing the best about others? That's a penetrating question if you, let it, if you just sit in that. Like when you have a gap in information, like why are they late, right? Why do they seem to need my help again? Why did this thing happen again? Are you going to fill that gap with trust or are you going to fill it with cynicism? Like, do you believe the best about your spouse or do you assume the worst? Do you believe the best about your employees or your employer or do you assume the worst? Do you believe the best about your kids or do you assume the worst? Like, some of you are like, you know, we live in a cynical world for a reason. You should see my kids. Like, I have every reason to believe the worst, you know? Or you should, you, you know my spouse. You know I have every reason to believe the worst. You, you don't understand my workplace. You haven't had to spend time there. You should get a real job, because if you had a real job, you would have every reason in the world to believe the worst about people. You wouldn't be so judgmental about me. So just to defend myself in this fake argument I'm having with myself, I worked, a second, I worked second jobs outside this church for 18 years while leading the church too, so this is not hypothetical to me, uh, but uh, we, just tend to, we just tend to think, hey, there's lots of reasons for me to be cynical. Like, am I believing the best about my wife? Am I believing the best about my kids? Am I believing the best about the people I work with? Am I believing the best about the people I serve with in this church, whether it's our elders, our volunteers, the best about the people in my life, or am I assuming the worst? Because here's the thing. Choosing trust is a lot better than all the other alternatives. And here's what's true. Because remember, what's true is more important than what we feel is true. We said that a few years ago, and I keep coming back to that. What's true is more important than what we feel is true. And what is true is that when you believe the best about others, you tend to get the best from others. It's not a promise, okay? But you tend to. When you believe the best about others, you tend to get the best from others. That when you decide, okay, I'm not going to be the cynical boss, I'm not going to be the cynical husband. I'm not going to be the cynical dad. I'm not going to be the cynical American. Like, yes, you, you need to be realistic. And yes, sometimes there's a problem, and sometimes there are issues that need to be dealt with. But, you know, it's like I'm not going to pre-decide. Because when you believe the best about others, it has an amazing impact on the people around you. Here's, a, here's what's true about trust. And this is going to push some of us because, like, maybe you've got trust issues that you know about or maybe you don't. Because maybe you're like, well, if you really knew my story, like everybody's let me down. 
Everybody's taking advantage of me. You weren't born in the family I was born into. You're not married to the person I'm married to. You don't have the kids I have. You don't work where I work, because if you did, you wouldn't choose trust either. Trust is a choice, and suspicion is a choice. Cynicism is a choice. So we have to decide, am I going to choose trust, or am I going to choose cynicism? Like, how am I going to fill in the gaps in the information? How am I going to do that? Am I going to fill it with trust? Like, because that's a decision. Or am I going to fill it with suspicion? And over time, listen, that response becomes a habit, just a way of life, the way that you see the world, the way that you see people. Like, when you habitually choose suspicion or habitually choose trust, either way, it impacts your view of the world, and it affects the culture of your family and your marriage and the culture of your friendships and all of your relationships. And I know this isn't typical. I know it's counterintuitive and even countercultural, but like we want to be a different people, right? Because of the way of Jesus and specifically the way Jesus treats us. And because of that, we want to be different. We embrace different. So we want to be people who choose trust, not cynicism. So the question is, why do we choose suspicion? Like, why do we go towards cynicism? Why do so many of us end up there by default? I think we fill in gaps with suspicion and cynicism because, first of all, that's just like you were raised that way. Like as a little kid or as a middle schooler, you sat around the table, if you sat around the table or wherever you were in your house and you heard your mom and dad talk about everybody critically and negatively, like they filled in every gap with suspicion. And you, you heard that. You heard your grandparents thrown under the bus. You heard all of your relatives and your cousins thrown under the bus. You heard your dad's boss thrown under the bus and his coworkers and your neighbors. You heard people at church thrown under the bus, and especially the deacons and the elders and the pastor. Maybe you were just raised that way and you assumed that's normal. But, but let's just all be adults here. That's not normal. It's common, but it's not normal. It's a choice. We don't have to approach the world that way. I think it's so much better if we don't live life that way. But maybe you came by it honestly. And the second reason I would say that we choose suspicion and cynicism over trust is that sometimes we think we're better. We think we're better than the other person. Like there's a part of me that feels like I'm superior to that person who's always showing up late. Like just start getting ready 10 minutes earlier so you can leave the house 10 minutes earlier so you can arrive to the thing on time. It's not rocket science. And when I'm fill, but when I'm filling in the gaps like that, because I don't know why they're late, I don't know what's going on, like, but that's what's happening inside. And what's happening on the inside of me is that I'm being a little bit judgmental and a little bit arrogant because I think I'm better. Where does that come from? It comes from thinking I'm better than that person, right? And when you really chase that down, it gets pretty ugly. Another reason why we lean into cynicism over trust is maybe you've stopped hoping. You've stopped hoping. Like you've been in this headspace for so long that you've lost hope. Like every guy that I'm ever going to meet is like every other guy I've ever met. Every woman behaves this way. Kids can't be trusted. Parents can't be trusted. Every boss is in it for him or herself. Every coworker is inevitably going to stab you in the back. It happens everywhere I've been. And you've stopped hoping. And the death of hope feeds cynicism. It's where cynicism comes from. Now, this is a Christian church. We have a Christian gospel. We have the good news is a gospel of hope. The message of Jesus that 
looked like our worst, it looked like our worst enemy, you know, uh, it looked our worst enemy in the face, like our worst enemy as humans is death. And the gospel of Jesus is that Jesus looked our worst enemy in the face, conquered it, overcame it. So the one thing we have absolutely no control over in this life is our death. It's the ultimate defeat, right? And Jesus conquered it. So here's my point. Our God is a God of hope. He's a God of hope who says, your past does not define your future, does not define you and does not determine your future. Yesterday doesn't have to be what happens tomorrow. I am a God of hope. And what's happened for some of us, the reason maybe you've grown so cynical, the reason you keep choosing suspicion is you've lost hope. And I think that maybe you need a fresh encounter with Jesus. Because when we meet Jesus and we walk with Jesus, we realize that he is a God of forgiveness. He is a God of hope. He is a God of new beginnings. And through the life that he offers, it gives us the opportunity to hope again, to believe again, and ultimately to trust again. So I just want to encourage you to drill deep, stop choosing suspicion, start choosing trust. And you're like, I'm going to need somebody to help me with that. Exactly. And I think when you're a Christian and you decide to really go deep into your story and you really start to say, okay, I've been betrayed, I've been hurt, I've been taken advantage of. Jesus comes alongside and says, there's hope because I'm bringing a kingdom of life, a kingdom that's this kingdom of God. It's a whole new value system. Well, Paul the apostle wrote, uh, about this a couple thousand years ago in a letter to the church in Rome. First century church in Rome was a group of Christians, just like you and me, just trying to figure out, you know, how, what, what on earth does this mean for me? Like, how do I live this out? These teachings of Jesus, how do I live that out in my everyday? So Paul writes to that. And in Romans chapter 12, this is where we're going to spend a few more minutes, and in, in, um, this is the substance of the message. Romans 12, verse 9. Paul says, don't just pretend to love others. Ever been there? Don't look at anybody right now, but uh, just don't just pretend to love others. Really love them. So here's the, like, we've all got categories of people. We got people we love. We got the people we like. We got the people we tolerate. On the outer edges, we got the people we can't stand, we'd rather not spend time with. We try to, or we try to do this. We try to organize our lives into these categories of people. Paul says you've got to really love people for who they are, not for what you want them to be, but for who they really are. Like, love people for who they really are. Really love them. Like, okay, we're, we are going to need God's help with this one. Like, if we really take this seriously. And he promises to help. That's what the Holy Spirit does. He helps. Keep reading verse 9. Hate what is wrong. Hold tightly to what is good. So, as easy as it is to fill in the gaps and assume the worst about people, that's not a helpful way to think. So he's like, when you find something good, grab onto it. Verse 10, love each other with genuine affection. It's like no faking. And take delight in honoring each other. I think in order to honor one another, it starts with a healthy view of yourself. Because you, like, we can't be so insecure or so jealous or so bitter that we can't really then honor somebody else. Like, you want to get to a place where you can actually honor and take delight in honoring another 
Like, like this isn't about me. I'll step out of the spotlight. I'm going to put you in the spotlight. I'm going to celebrate what God is doing and has done in your life. I'm going to celebrate this good thing that's happened for you. Do you see how countercultural this stuff is? Paul says, if you're wondering what this looks like, verse 11, never be lazy, but work hard and serve the Lord enthusiastically. So we should be busy doing good. We should be busy you know, making the world a, a better place. We should be busy living out our faith. We should throw our heart in behind everything we do. Verse 12, rejoice in our confident hope. I love that. Rejoice in our confident hope. God is our God of hope. Rejoice in our confident hope. Be patient in trouble and keep on praying. So if we, if we take these words seriously, I think they have the potential to rock our world. See, I need to pray because I'm not like this by default. All the stuff Paul's talking about doesn't describe me. I, I need to get to here. I will pick suspicion. I will not choose trust. I will lean into cynicism. I will choose the negative, unhealthy way, not the positive, healthy way. I will fake love people. So will you. I won't really love people. I got to roll up my sleeves and get to work on this. Like I got to get serious about my faith, living out the values of Jesus. So I have to, and how am I going to do this? Well, I got to start right here by praying about that and, and to say, God, I don't have the strength to do this. I don't, I, get to not, I got this roadblock. I can't get around it. And I think God is saying, great, because this is what I do. The Holy Spirit will help you. Verse 13. When God's people are in need, be ready to help them. Always be eager to practice hospitality. See, this is, um, this is where uh, one value ties into the other. This is where practicing wise and biblical principles and priorities when it comes to things like our money is important. Like pursuing margin in our time and our money is important. Like here's the thing, if you're super busy, all you're over, overly scheduled, or let's say you're always broke, you have no margin and time and finances, you can't help people. If you're always so hyper-scheduled and overbooked and overcommitted, you're not going to be in a place to help anybody when somebody really needs help. So we need to pursue health and get some margin in our lives, in our time and with our money. And then uh, we need, not only that, but then we need to be ready. Be ready to practice hospitality. Verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Don't curse them. Pray that God will bless them. Well, first of all, I'm not sure that we really know what that means to have someone persecute us. So let's just, let's just, let's just bring it down to our world. Uh, let's, let's say, bless those who make your life difficult. That's about as hard as it is for us, right? Don't curse them. Pray that God will bless them. So when was the last time you prayed for that difficult coworker? When was the last time you prayed for that mother-in-law that drives you crazy? The ex that makes your life so difficult. He says, don't curse them. Pray that God will bless them. You're like, how do I pray? Here's something. Pray the words that we sing sometimes from Numbers 26. This blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you and make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. And the Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. And may his favor be upon you in a thousand generations in your family and your children and their children. In other words, God, I pray that you would be outrageously generous to the people I can't stand. That's a great prayer. I think God changes us when we pray like that. Verse 15. Be happy with those who are happy and weep with those who weep. Like when you're down, you need people who 
love you, right? You need to know that they're praying for you, they're supporting you. And when you're celebrating, like when something awesome happens, there's nothing like rather there's nothing better than having those people gather around you. Like and they aren't rather than like they aren't they could be jealous and they could be petty and bitter that someone else is having success, but instead they're celebrating with us. Nothing's better than that. Like we want to celebrate with others. Like when you've got something to celebrate, we want to weep with you when there's something to weep over. That's how the church is supposed to function. That's what the kingdom of God is like. Verse 16. This whew. Live in harmony with each other. Don't be too proud to enjoy the company of ordinary people and don't think you know it all. Did you know that was in the Bible? This is a New Living Translation. Don't think you know it all. Oh, I know exactly what happened. I know exactly what she's like. I know exactly what's going on in that situation. Here's why they're such terrible people. Here's why they deserve all the bad things that are happening to them. Don't think you know it all, and I would just put it this way, don't fill in all the gaps in your information. So after all this, if trust is a choice, then the question is, is practically, how do I choose trust? Like, how do you actually do that? I got three or four things I want to suggest that have helped me choose trust, and some of us have had these conversations over the years, so I'm going to share it with everybody because I think maybe you'll find it helpful. Number one, and uh, this is really, really practical, is treat the people closest to you like perfect strangers. Treat the people closest to you like perfect, and I don't mean Larry and Balky, but um, that was for my generation. Uh, Treat the people closest to you like perfect strangers. That may sound kind of weird, but what I mean by that is this. Well, this thing, this this phenomenon that I've noticed in our culture where we have this I'm just going to call it a tone of voice that we use exclusively for our family in our home. Like, you know what I'm talking about. It's a combination of impatience and over-familiarity and irritation and aggravation and frustration and condescension. I'm not sure what to call it. Like, I, just, I just call it family voice. It's just family voice. And the reason it's family voice is because if you use that voice at work tomorrow, they would fire you. If you use it at a restaurant today after church with the wait staff, the manager may ask you to leave. You're like, oh, I don't think I really have a family voice. Ask your kids. Ask your kids if you have a family voice. Ask your spouse. They might even imitate you because they, they have an impression of you. You know that, right? Okay. Like, how do you address the family voice? And this is, like, how do you change that? Like, how do you even hear it when it comes out of your own mouth? For me, my wife called me on it years ago, because you know her. She's an in-your-face, outspoken, truth-telling person. No, she's not. Um, But uh, she summoned up the courage and identified my tone of voice. Um, That was 20-plus years ago, and I've been working on it ever since. And uh, she's helped me with that, and she continues to help me with that. She points it out when she hears it, because I don't always hear it. So some accountability with somebody Um, who is on the receiving end of your family voice is an effective way to address that. Um, I think another way to get over the family voice thing is just to, like I said, to treat people closest to you like perfect strangers. Because think about it. If you're meeting someone for the first time, like today, like while you're here, you've met someone for the first time, like you're at your absolute best behavior. You're super polite and you're very generous. You listen, you let them do the talking. 
like that, that's how we are. We're going to be polite. We're going to be kind. We're going to listen. We aren't going to talk down to someone we just met. We aren't, whatever. You aren't going to be suspicious. You're just going to accept them at face value. That's what we do. But once that person is no longer a stranger, no longer a new acquaintance, now you've gotten to know each other. Maybe you're dating. Maybe you got engaged. Maybe you married that person. And now you got kids and someone taught them to communicate. That was a big mistake. And now you just kind of forget about the good behavior thing and out comes the family voice. So that's why I say treat the people closest to you like perfect strangers. Again, what's that look like? I think it looks like this. Let's say tomorrow morning, just before your kids head out to school, and your 10-year-old was supposed to empty the dishwasher because you give them tasks to do around the house because that's how families work, and the dishwasher, surprise, surprise, is not emptied. Like, how do you interact with that? You say to your 10-year-old, oh, I see you haven't emptied the dishwasher. Is there some way I may help you with that? And your 10-year-old looks at you and is like, oh, no, blessed father, I beg thy forgiveness. I have been forgetful. Let me serve you by emptying the dishwasher right now while the bus drives by, you know? And you get into this politeness battle with your 10-year-old. I mean, it could go like that, I suppose, but it's not, I don't think so. Treat the people closest to you like perfect strangers and you will start choosing trust. Number two, Find the most charitable explanation. So anytime there's a gap in information, don't assume the worst. Like, don't assume that they're out to get you, first of all. Don't assume that they intentionally cut you off in traffic so that you can't get where you're going. They're probably just a bad driver. That's just, that's just okay, that, that's all. Just let that go. They aren't necessarily trying to make your life difficult. Find the most charitable explanation. Try to find something charitable rather than something cynical. And maybe as a place to start, just this one phrase as a default, because like this works in every situation. Like every time you're tempted to fill in gaps, make a judgment, choose suspicion or cynicism over trust. Every time, you know, your son doesn't empty the dishwasher. Every time your daughter, you know, said she was going to be home at 10 and it's 10.07 and she's just coming through the door. Just assume this. Maybe we can practice this. Just assume this. I'm sure there's a perfectly good explanation. I'm sure there's a perfectly good explanation. And you're like, you were so wishy-washy. Yeah, maybe. Like, even if there's not a perfectly good explanation, we start from that place and it'll go a lot better. Sets so the groundwork to move somebody from being on the defensive to taking responsibility. I'm sure there's a perfectly good explanation. I never do this and I hate it when people do this, but you want to say this with me? Just to see, to prove that we can actually say the words. Can we read it together? Okay. I'm sure there's a perfectly good explanation. Nicely done. Why do you make us do that? I don't know. I'm sure there's a perfectly good explanation. Number three, think about how you want to be treated. We're getting back to basics now. Think about how you would prefer to be treated. Because like, I don't like walking late into a meeting and, and everyone thinking in their thought bubbles, you know, he's always late, he doesn't care, we're not a priority, he's not prepared. I, I would like people to believe the best about me. So when somebody shows up late and I don't, I don't want to choose suspicion, it's not fair, I don't want to fill in the gaps of what I don't know. So I want to lean into choosing trust, so I need to remember how I would want to be treated and treat them accordingly. Um, so I think when we remember how we would like to be treated, because like, this is the trap we get into like in your marriage. It's like, well, if, if you treated me that way, then I would treat you this way. And they're like, well, if you treated me this way, then I would treat you that way. It's a stalemate. And nobody wins. Like, it doesn't, it, nobody moves forward. How would you prefer to be treated? Number four, remember how God through Christ has treated you. 
Like this is, this is why we need this for the church. Like this, is, this should be our culture at faith community in every church. This should be the culture. This should characterize the marriages and the families and the households and the workplaces for everyone who calls faith community their church. This is how we should treat each other because that's how God in Christ has treated us. So listen, we all got, we all got stuff in our lives. We've all got things we aren't proud of, uh, that nobody should be proud of. We've all made mistakes. Uh, we've sinned. We could, you know, stand before God and God would say to us, oh, look at this or look at that and your failure there and your loser there and this one over here is in the corner, this is one of the shadows that you thought nobody knew about. That's a big one. And he could do that. Like he could hold all of that over our heads and make us answer for all of that. But the good news is through Christ, he's chosen to forgive me. He's chosen to forgive you. The scripture says he doesn't treat us as our sins deserve. He's forgiven me. He's forgiven you. Not because we cleaned up our act. He's forgiven us. And that's why we're motivated to clean up our act. We get it backwards. So when I think about how God through Christ has treated me, that he forgives me, that he loves me, that he sees me as worthy, that he thinks the best about me, how can I then not extend that same mercy, that same forgiveness, that same grace to you and to my wife and to my kids and to my family and to the people I get to serve with, like the people I do life with? How can I choose suspicion and cynicism over and over again when Jesus has chosen trust, when he's shown us what it is to trust? God made a radical decision as far as the Garden of Eden and the creation story that even though we had rejected him, even though we made decisions that created this massive space between, this distance between us and God, our Heavenly Father, even then, he set into motion this plan that would culminate with Jesus on the cross 2,000 years ago, all to forgive us, to redeem us, to restore us to relationship, to restore value to our lives, to restore his creation. Jesus called it abundant life. And so this high standard is for Christians. It's for people who follow Jesus. And the standard is we need to forgive and we need to trust. And maybe some of you have been longing for that day. You've been longing for the day where you walk into the room and, oh no, your parents don't choose suspicion. They choose trust. Some of you, when you go home from church and your husband or your wife is going to be suspicious of the crazy kind of crazy teaching you heard today, you've been listening to. They may choose suspicion and cynicism, but it's your call to choose trust. Maybe you're being called to begin to do your part to change the culture in your family, in your life, because it starts with you and me. It starts with us, because when we believe the best about others, at work, at home, in all of our relationships, eventually, we tend to get the best from others, rather than assuming the worst, it calls out the best. So... Here's the thing. There's a new day. Like There's a kingdom advancing. It's the kingdom of God, and we're part of it. And it's a, it's a different culture. We get to be a part of establishing that culture here in our church and in our homes and in our family, and eventually it leaks out into our greater community. So when we come up against the, roadblocks, uh, the roadblock of cynicism, let's choose trust because trust is a choice. Let's choose trust and move forward. Let's pray together.
Father, I just want to pray for all of us today. Because this is, this is challenging. This challenges me. It challenges all of us. And we don't want to just like create a culture for the sake of creating a culture. We want to be part of a movement. We want to be part of this movement that Jesus started. We want to be part of the, this movement of the kingdom of God that is advancing out in our lives and through our lives, into our families, into the workplace, into the church, into our community. So Lord, give us a strength, give us courage, give us boldness, give us confidence to choose trust, to be the optimist in a crowd of pessimists, to be the agents of hope in a world of cynicism, to maybe be that one light in our family that's just going to believe the best rather than assuming the worst, to be the one who's going to believe that there's a perfectly good explanation. To be the one who's just going to choose to believe that again and again. I pray that would describe us as a church. I pray that that would be true of us. And as we advance this new way of thinking, this new way of seeing others, this new way of living, this new way of life that Jesus has called us to, help us in the days ahead to choose trust.